This week, we've got questions on baptism, godparents, and emperors. And Charles talks about instances of werewolves in recent history. Welcome to another episode of Off the Menu, now being broadcast in podcasts on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. I'm Vincent Franchini from Tumblr House here with a folkloric Charles Kula. Folkloric? Oh, yeah. Really? You mean like I'm, I'm a, a character out of folklore? Indeed. I'm, I'm like an elf or, or, or a will-o'-the-wisp or a jack-o'-lantern or, or uh, a centaur or, or uh, Tom Bombadil. I mean, what, really? Really? So I'm being relegated to the pages of folklore, basically. Yeah. I, I, yeah. What's wrong with that? Nothing. No. Once upon a time in a, in a deep Austrian castle, there lived an old man. He told many, many things, some true, some false, some funny, some sad. And they do say that if you found that old man, you would never be the same again, especially if you took a drink from his magic bottle that said sometimes night train, at other times ripple, at other times still Annie Green Springs. What? What do you These are all those are all cheap wines for my youth. Oh. <laughs> 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 I was following you until you got into those names. Those are like wino wines when I was young. <laughs> I mean, they were real horrible. <laughs> 75 cent bottles of wine, you know, you, you figure it out. Wow. Yeah, you, well, you, you can tell when the vintage is by month. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a giveaway. No, no, they had some really bad stuff then. Mad Dog 2020, Thunderbird. What's the word? Thunderbird. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, they had, they had the, the, there were giants on the earth in those days. That was when people had real livers. <laughs> Not the girly livers they have now. <laughs> the girly little livers, you know. They have to have decent wine. They can't drink swill and then laugh. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's true. People today are spoiled. You know, wine drinkers especially. Because in those days, people really didn't drink much wine in the States. I know there was some. There have always been a few aficionados, but uh, it was cocktails, it was beer, and then if you were, shall we say, alcoholically challenged, it, it, uh, there were these real cheap Rotgut swill wines. Hmm. There's a lot of really affordable, drinkable wines on the market nowadays, I feel like. Well, yeah, there are. Starting with two buck chuck. I don't go that. I don't go that low. Two buck chuck is decent. Oh, you know another thing you won't see anymore in stores that they used to have are cooking wines. Yeah, like they would have. It would be labeled cooking. You know, whatever. I don't remember the company name, but you know, I don't know Johnson and Johnson cooking sherry. Mm. You don't see that anymore. 
I don't think so, no. Hmm. How, how does that make you feel? I mean, I uh, admittedly, my family doesn't really cook with wine. Um, but, I mean, is there a difference? I mean, like, can you, like, if you use a cheap cooking wine? I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know the difference. I, I mean, if you've got a palate, you know the difference. Interesting. Okay. If you don't have a palate, of course, it doesn't really matter. I, I, I wonder... Just again, these are the kinds of questions that keep me awake at night. Uh, they still have cooking sherry? I, I don't know. Maybe some of our, our family of listeners know. Cooking. Sherry. Yeah, you know, uh, I went to an Italian restaurant and I um, they had port. And that really got me interested in port. And um, in the marketplace, in, um, what is it, Ralph's. I went to a Ralph's. There was only one bottle of uh, one brand in the whole store. I was, I was kind of surprised at that. I thought it would be more um, popular. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. They do still have cooking sherry. Hmm. Uh, Best sellers, they've got cooking, Reese sherry cooking wine, cooking wine sherry, Regina fine sherry cooking wine, one gallon. Uh, is that fine, sure. is that is, do you typically use sherry to uh, as a cooking wine? Like you don't use people don't typically use other varietals, do they? Oh, uh, oh, sure. I mean, Berth Bourguignon needs Burgundy. Oh, interesting. Um, Holland House sherry cooking wine. Oh, they they still have cooking sherry. What do you know? Uh, but Marsala cooking wine, white cooking wine. They have all these cooking wines at, at Walmart, of all places. Huh. Well, this is interesting. I had no idea. The, but why, why is it? Uh, oh, I see. The thing about cooking wine. Uh, they mix different things with it. Salt is added and uh it's kind of weird yeah it's got a very high alcohol content it has high yeah it's uh it can be uh, challenging to drink it straight ah interesting what what's high alcohol content like 20 percent or something for a wine Mm. i don't know i mean i've never thought of sherry itself as being particularly high in alcohol content, but apparently cooking sherry is. All right. Well, so, all right. Um, enough of this Raul de Fall. Uh, so we have other things going on, lots of other things. Like Amazing what? things. Well, uh, Letari Sunday will be the week after this, I think, uh, when the priest comes out in rose, not pink, vestments. Except in Germany, where the synodal path has officially changed it to pink, shocking pink. And you're able to wear shocking pink in Germany for every mass now. Not a surprise. No, the synodal path has opened itself to love. <laughs> what? Can I, can I do anything in the name of the synodal path? Well, you can, given <laughs> that, uh, well, no, given that, 
the synodal path has the the bishops of Germany passed resolutions calling for special blessings for gay and uh, divorced and remarried people. So, and a lot of other interesting things. So I think from now on, we've got to defend the Tridentine Mass by saying that it's part of the synodal path process. I think that's a good idea. But I think, I think this, honestly, though, I think the synodal path is only the path for people with money. I think that's the well, only way it works. That's, that's true. That's why it's the German bishops, because they've got a lot of dough thanks to the church tax. Yeah. And they're rolling in dough. So they can do whatever they want, which is why I think if the trads are smart, they'll pool their money, put together thousands upon thousands, perhaps millions of dollars in a combat fund, and send an emissary to Pope Francis, showing him the figures, and then saying, all these will I give you if you allow me my mass. <laughs> And I'm sure he'll fall down and worship. Well, I mean, equivalently. He's in a wheelchair now, so he's not going to be doing anything exciting. Oh, like permanently? Yeah, I think he's permanently in a wheelchair. Hmm. He's, in, he's in a bad way. So so is that the path? Is, uh, simony? Path, well, simony and sodomy. Don't say that. Okay, sodomy and simony. Is that better? No. <sighs> All right, I can do this. Don't help me. Sodomy, simony, and um, psychiatry. That's not the path for me. I'm sorry, Charles. I, I, I cannot, where you go, I cannot follow. I'm not going there either. <laughs> the problem is neither of us are German bishops. That's true. If we were, we could see that the road to hell is paid with uh, bishops' heads, as St. John Chrysostom tells us. I thought it was paved with good intentions. That too. I'm sure they mean well. <laughs> well, no, I mean, it's like if you've got a flagstone hallway, but it's carpeted, is the hallway flagstone or is it carpeted? Well, the answer is both. I feel like this is one of your surrealist questions. No, it's not. The path to hell is built of bishop skulls, but it's got a carpet of good intentions. <laughs> okay. Oh. Is that better? <laughs> I'll roll with that. Let's do that. Indeed. And that's how people go. They roll down that path. All right. It's a downward slope, you see. <laughs> and the, uh, the when you get to the bottom, the motto is snap, crackle, pop, just like Rice Krispies. No, but seriously, a uh, couple of other things to mention. The glorious Three Kingdoms tour is coming up. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, to remind you, roughly March 25th, the Annunciation will blast out of here. And... Uh, from now until the 1st or 2nd of April, uh, I plan to be in Ireland with a school chum. And then on the 1st or 2nd, to Cambridge in uh, England, then to London, Oxford, and then up north 
to Edinburgh on the weekend of the 16th to be in Inverness and at Culloden for the anniversary of the battle. And then back here to Trumal, the glorious Three Kingdoms tour. So let me know if you're anywhere around. And if, you, if we can visit you, we shall. If we can't, we won't. Hmm. Let that be a lesson to you. All righty. Um, anything else? Anything else going on? Yeah, lots of things going on in this best of all possible worlds. Everything's wonderful in its own way. Like a starry summer night or a snow-covered winter's day. I think we're going to give uh, the Good Shepherd Academy a shout-out. Uh, uh, we are that. It's, um, it's in the Inland Empire. Inland Empire. Uh, I'll just read uh, their mission. Good Shepherd Academy, an independent co-educational school for grades kindergarten to 12, founded by parents as primary educators, seeks to form students to know, love, and serve God through a rigorous classical education aligned with the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church with frequent reception of the sacraments, developing reverence for the Holy Mass to fortify their faith in Jesus Christ and the Most Holy Eucharist. Uh, my my brother's really um, excited to do some fundraising for this. It's it's uh, a great academy. Um, so, you know, if, if well, you have, remember, yeah, Stephen Franchini was the the founder of Tumblr House. The the pioneer of the family's moved into uh, legitimate business. I mean, let me rephrase. I didn't mean it the way it sounded. Stephen facilitated a change of emphasis in the Franchini family enterprises. Yes. So, you, so you didn't hear me say that's when you went legit. I didn't say that. That's right. You did. No. Steve's a good fella, so go. He's uh, good. A, a made man, as you might a say. A made man, so go. Uh, um, if you're interested in donating, go to thegoodshepherdacademy.org. Uh, or if you're in, the, actually live in the Inland Empire and you're looking for a place for your kids, that's a it's a good um, good place to send them. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to state of the week. Oi, hysteria, confusion. Hawaii. Oh, aloha, <laughs> aloha, like that. Should I sing the Merry Christmas song in Hawaiian that Big Crosby sang? Da 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 Malakalikalika or whatever oh, it is. Oh, I I didn't know that was a. Oh, that's right. I've heard yeah. that song. At first, I thought you're. I thought that would be weird, but he makes Bing Crosby makes it work. Actually, yeah, he does. He uh, he does manage. Uh, let me see. I I can never pronounce it properly. Uh, let me see. Malekalikimaka is the way. That's the that's the one. Yeah. Malekalikimaka. <laughs> and the uh Malekalikimaka. Uh let me see. 
There it is. This is great. Mele Kalekimaka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. That's the island greeting that we send to you from the land where palm trees sway. Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright, the sun to shine by day and all the stars at night. Mele Kalekimaka is Hawaii's way to say Merry Christmas to you. Ah, yes, indeed. Here we know that Christmas will be green and bright, the sun to shine by day and all the stars at night. Mele Kalikimaka is Hawaii's way to say Merry Christmas, a very Merry Christmas, a very, very Merry Christmas to you. So have you been to Hawaii? I have been to Hawaii. Oh, now you want to know more about it. Fine. I would say, first and foremost, uh, I've not really been out of Honolulu. But the Iolani Palace, which was the seat of Hawaii's kings, is really worth seeing. Uh, the Kauaio Church, I think, I, and I know I'm mispronouncing it, the so-called Westminster Abbey of uh, Hawaii, which was the first church of the Hawaiian kings. St. Andrew's Cathedral, Episcopal Cathedral, which is the um, second church of Hawaii's kings, and St. Augustine uh, Waikiki, the third church of Hawaii's kings, because now they're Catholic. So they went, the royal family went from being Congregationalist to Anglican to Catholic. Um, the uh, Hawaiian Royal Guard perform, although I don't know when. You'll have to look it up. The Hawaiian Cultural Center in Honolulu, the Arizona Memorial and all the Pearl Harbor things are very moving. Um, the Catholic Cathedral in Hawaii, in, uh, Hawaii, in um, Honolulu is called Our Lady of Peace. And uh, on Waikiki, of course, you've got the Royal Hawaiian Hotel. Uh, that's really all I've seen personally. Uh, there are a couple of other uh, royal houses on Oahu. The Big Island, of course, of Hawaii has, uh, amongst other things, the great volcanoes. Mauna Lea, Mauna Koa, Kilauea Crater. Um, Molokai has the uh, Father Damien's, uh, St. Damien de Verster's uh, uh, leper colony. Um, Maui, of course, is renowned for New Agers and that sort of thing. Lanai is, was for years primarily a cattle ranch, but I think there's something else there now. Kauai is also very wild. And then west of Kauai, is the island of Niau, which is privately owned by the Robinson family. But almost everyone there are pure Hawaiian. And there are very few places in Hawaii where you'll find that. So that's those are, that's what I know to see. I, uh, I'd love to get back to Hawaii and spend a lot more time exploring. Yeah. Shout out to Damien High School. I went to Damien High School in Laverne, all boys um, Catholic high school. But so I'm really big, obviously, on Father Damien. But, you know, because he especially, 
is a saint for our age. Because you look at all the the masking up, all the nervousness, all the, you know, worried about sickness. Oh, this guy was care. a priest, and he went to a leper oh. colony, and he just didn't care. No, he that's not true. He, he, he wore a mask, and he was locked down. <laughs> and, and Father Damien spent all the years uh, hiding in his house and refusing to give the sacraments to anybody. <laughs> See, I, that's, he, that's what I remember. He goes to a leper colony, and he ministers in, to the lepers and cares for them. And he, But he lasted a long time, actually. He didn't get he leprosy. Did. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself, how long. I think it's like, I don't know if it was two decades, uh, two, like two or three decades of uh, of living there. And finally, he, yeah. he got it. But, um, but yeah, imagine that. Like, who? That's, that's just... Uh, and so, but of course, um, he's a product of uh, colonialism and imperialism, as uh, said by um, Congressman uh, Cortez. Oh, yes, Congressman Warren. Well, all I can say to Congressman Warren is, Mele Kilikamaka. That's right. All right. Uh... That's the Hawaiian to say you're a moron. <laughs> no, that's not. It's Merry Christmas. Mele Kalikamaka is the thing to say on a bright Hawaiian Christmas day. Are you getting into the Christmas spirit now? No. All right. Uh, no memes this week. We're going to jump straight into the questions. Question from Vonday Radio. Okay. Yuletide cheer. Uh, he says, Dear Charles, please could you tell us about your master's studies? How is your course structured, and how has it progressed over the years? What have been your personal highlights? How has it enriched your work as a historian and a writer? Woof, very good question. Well, firstly, I took the three years of the BA, which were kind of intense instruction in philosophy, particularly Plato and Aristotle, literature, uh, specifically uh, the Iliad, the Aeneid, and uh, and Dante. We explored those three very, very in depth. Um, there was some history, uh, a general survey course, and uh, that was the the BA program. Um, then the the uh, uh, last two years up till now have been much more strongly theological, Mariology, Angelology. I had a course in the work of Father Matthias Schaben, uh, the Sacraments, Ecclesiology, uh, all very much from the Church Fathers and St. Thomas. So I suppose you could say that um, it deepened my understanding, it has deepened my understanding of how these things have affected history um, and also underlined what the church is really all about. And what is the church really all about? Well, in a nutshell, and mind you, it's not like I didn't know this before, but it's really been brought home to me over and over again. You have fallen nature and you have divine grace. And fallen nature... Uh, especially 
as regards man has to be redeemed by divine grace if it's to find eternal happiness. And one of the major heresies of our time is to confound nature with grace and to say you don't need grace, everything's just wonderful as it is, which has led to what Benedict XVI condemned as universalism back in 2016 when he made his famous interview and said that because of that, the church has lost its evangelistic fervor and really any reason to remain Catholic. So I guess what I could tell you is that the education I've gotten here is one of the best antidotes to that I know. Hmm. Name something cool that you've learned that you didn't know. Angelology sounded really cool. It is cool. It's extremely cool. But something I really didn't know at all. Oh, well. Yeah, the you know, the question of the procession of the will uh, versus the intellect is fascinating because even from St. Thomas's point of view, although he's usually said, you know, the intellect precedes the will, the problem is that the two actually operate side by side and simultaneously. So for St. Thomas, it becomes very difficult to reduce it to the order of time. Wow, that's really deep. Yeah, because, I mean, you could say the one influences the other, the other influences the one, but it's not as though they happen in sequence. They have to have, they, they happen at precisely the same moment. So, I mean, it, it, it becomes a very difficult thing to uh, quantify or qualify, as we say back home. I see. So they happen in the exact same moment, but sort of um, the will sort of gatekeeps the intellect. Is that true? Where it's like... Well, it, it pushes it in a given direction. Yeah. But the intellect informs the will which way to go. It's, it's very much a symbiosis, according to St. Thomas. It's hmm. interesting. Uh, but of course, the, the other thing too is that uh, with the MA in theology, it will permit me to be obnoxiously bloviating constantly. Are you going to have letters after your name? Well, yeah. STM. So, like, in, in your publications, it, it, that's going to be a thing? I doubt it. <laughs> okay. I'm just curious. Well, I mean... I'm 62 years old. I really don't care. <laughs> yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm very proud to be doing this, and I'm very happy I've done it. It's one of the best choices I've ever made in my life, in my humble opinion. But in terms of the honorifics, I'm not going to be around that much longer to enjoy them. Hmm. So it would be different if I were 30 years younger. Okay. All right. A uh, question from um, Miranda. Miranda says, um, the, uh, a question for Charles, the uncle I wish I had. You seem like a very good godfather. What can you do as a godparent when the parents of your godchild cut ties with you and move away from their faith? Two words, not much. 
All you can really do at that point is pray for them, pray for your godchild. And if you live long enough, uh, once said godchild is on his or her own, uh, try to establish some sort of relationship with them. Hmm. That's really all you can do. I mean, the problem with being godfather today or godmother is that you have all the responsibility and none of the ability, none of the power to do anything. And sometimes you'll see your friends go down the tubes and take their kid, your godchild with them, and there's nothing you can do except pray. And then, as I say, when the kid comes of age, if you're in a, in a position and are able to reach out to them, as they say these days, then by all means do it. And if you've got some way of establishing a commonality with the kid, do it. You may find the kid in full-fledged rebellion against his parents. And remember, you knew his parents before he did or she did. So you might find some common ground there. Hmm. Pause for channel identification. Uh, off the menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade Channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. All right. A uh, question from James who says, Hello, Don Vincent and Sir Charles. I've recently finished reading Father Montague Summers' The Werewolf of Lore and Legend and watched an older off-the-menu episode on werewolves. I noticed that Sir Charles' answer to an objection based on this phenomenon no longer occurring was that he was not convinced that was the case. Given that, what are his favorite or to his mind the most notable instances of potential werewolves in recent history? Well, of course, the, as is always the case, the most important comes to us out of the province of Quebec. A lot of werewolves in Quebec? Not all over the place, uh, except, of course, in Parliament. But, uh, <laughs> what? But the uh, island of Anticosti in the St. Lawrence was renowned for having werewolves. Any, um, I mean, is there any documentation? Like, uh, I remember for the vampires, I remember you were citing... Um, official government journals almost where they're doing well, reports uh, and indeed. they quite, yeah. I have to say, I don't think I have anything like that for werewolves, but uh, Lou Garou of uh, yeah, there we go. I, I looked up Lou Garou at the Costi and I immediately got the Curse of Gamache. Is uh, Quebec's Anticosti Island the weirdest place in Canada? Probably. Just ask the sorcerer, cannibals, ghost geologists, frogs, and 166,000 deer. So it's it's renowned for its lugaru. Wait, 166,000 deer? Why ask yeah. them? Are they dead or something? A werewolf eating them? Or I, I, I don't know. know. I don't know. Um, the... Um, they have a lot of them, though. Um, but I'm looking. Ah, 
yeah, the uh, the mysterious Gamash the sorcerer. The uh, huh, interesting. Interesting. The Le Sorcier de l'Ile Anticosti. What? Yeah, that the legend. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just looking at the French. Uh, so the Anticosti was famous for them. Uh, let's see if we can come up with something with modern werewolves. Uh, modern worlds uh, doesn't say nothing here. Okay, so you don't have any pre-existing knowledge of recent occurrences. No, I do not. Okay, I do not. Um, nuns and werewolves: a modern-day tale of witchcraft and deception. That sounds interesting. No thanks. All right. Uh, um, moving away from tradition, portrayal of modern werewolves and vampires. Oh, that's movies. Well, who's to say, right? Yeah. But um, James, uh, he has a PS here. He says, armed with my new little office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, purchased from the Redoubtable Dawn, I don't anticipate these creatures giving me much trouble in any case. Yes, that no, was a plug. Worry. I wouldn't worry if I were you. No free shipping to werewolves. Shout out to the entire Jorgensen family. They've been they've been around for I think like twenty years almost. Anyhow, all right. Uh, Timothy has a question, and he says, uh, "Question." For a future show, I recently attended my niece's baptism at St. Ferdinand Catholic Church in Ferdinand, Indiana, where I myself was baptized. Her, bapti oh. her baptism was in the New Rite, performed very casually and conversationally by a retired priest who inadvertently uttered, quote, we baptize you instead of I baptize you at the crucial moment. Quietly corrected him when he had finished, and being surprised to find that he had misspoken, he quickly baptized her correctly. My quandary is this. I was the only one present who noticed, and the group included both my parents and my own godmother. I have since been filled with a gnawing sense of doubt concerning my own baptism. Did these same well-intentioned people vigilantly ensure the proper formula was used back in 1987 at that same baptismal font. The new rite has so much we language in the prayers that even well-intentioned priests could easily slip. Should I consider getting conditionally baptized as well as all of my other sacraments, including marriage? Wow. That is tough. You know what? I would actually talk to that priest in Ferdinand and ask him. And the reason why I say that is that having made the mistake himself, he would be likely to listen and do something about it if he felt it needed to be done. If you see what I mean. In other words, if you, uh, if you went to just any old priest in any old parish, you might very well say, 
Oh, no, no, no. Don't be ridiculous. You're fine. In other words, dismiss it. Right, right. But if you speak to this priest who you corrected, I think he'd be likely to give it a real think. Because this is a question for a priest. It's not something I could give you a proper answer for. I will say, however, that your town of Ferdinand was named after Emperor Ferdinand of Austria, the uncle of Franz Josef, my father Joseph Hundek. And it's actually, for those of us who know these things, it's a fairly famous place. Awesome. All right. Uh, let's see here. Uh, question from Vonday Radio, who says, Dear Charles, Valentin Tomberg wrote about how the authors of the Middle Ages could not imagine Christianity without an emperor, just as they could not imagine the universal church without a pope, end quote. He said, quote, it is the crown of the emperor which confers royalty to the royal crowns from which the ducal crown and all the other crowns in turn derive their authority. Uh, he said, quote, without an emperor, there will be sooner or later no kings. And then sooner or later, there will be no nobility. Uh, and then he finishes saying, Europe is haunted by the shadow of the emperor. Please, could you discuss? Well, yeah, it's a, very, a quote I'm very fond of, actually. Hmm. Europe is haunted by the shadow of the emperor. The EU was an attempt to somehow regain the empire without the emperor. This is why the devout founders of the EU, uh, Schumann de Gasperi and Adenauer, looked to Charlemagne as, his, uh, as their inspiration and his crown as their symbol. But the problem is a crown without someone to wear it is just a piece of precious metals and, uh, and gems. Even if, like St. Stephen's crown in Hungary, it's considered a holy relic in and of itself. Frankly, since the time of um, Theodosius the Great, when the empire became Catholic, uh, and when baptism became not just entry into the church, but also into Roman citizenship, the empire has, in one way or another, survived in one form or another. Uh, when the last Western Roman Empire, uh, when well, that, the last Western Roman Emperor abdicated in 476, it was considered by all the Western tribes that had been subject to him that they were now subject to the Emperor Constantinople. And there was just one emperor again. But in 800, the Pope called the Western Empire back into being under um, uh, Charlemagne. That was the start of the Holy Roman Empire, which continued alongside, until 1453, the Byzantine Empire, which were, you might say, the two expressions of the Catholic imperial idea. In 1453, having been reunited for a very brief time with Rome, Constantinople fell, 
and Blessed Constantine the Eleventh, the last emperor in the East, was killed. But his niece was married to the Grand Duke of Moscow in a marriage arranged by the Pope of the day. That's something that Russians like to forget, but it's true. And from that time on, the Grand Duke of Moscow called himself Tsar and claimed to be heir to the Byzantine imperial tradition. Meanwhile, the Holy Roman Empire burbled along until 1806. In that year, fearful that Napoleon, who two years earlier called himself Emperor of the French, would try to snatch it, um, the Emperor Francis II abdicated the imperial throne and declared the empire dissolved. But you see, that was something he couldn't really do. It was, as you might say, ultra vires. Because you can abdicate a throne, all right, but you can't simply abolish the entity whose throne you're abdicating. But two years earlier, he had declared himself Emperor of Austria as well as a sort of escape hatch. So in 1806, he went from being Francis II of the Holy Roman Empire to being Francis I of the Austrian Empire. And in a lot of ways, the Austrian Empire took on many of the traditions of the Holy Roman Empire. World War I comes along. And as a result, as we know, both of these two expressions of the Roman Empire, Austria-Hungary and Russia, came to an end. Well, just because there is no emperor doesn't mean there is no empire. So what exactly is the empire today? Well, I think it was the great um, writer in English on the whole Roman Empire, Viscount Bryce, who put it best. He said, it's a sort of disembodied spirit. The imperial idea remains, even as bits and pieces of the empire lie here and there all over Europe, and indeed the Americas. The double eagle over the Spanish governor's palace in San Antonio, for instance. Because, obviously, the, the Habsburgs ruled Texas once upon a time. Uh, there are two quotes that I think are really apropos to this. One... Uh, that actually from uh, it's actually Viscount Bryce's um, Viscount Bryce's manum opus uh, just quoted. Uh, let me see. Here we are. Uh, made the comment um, after discussing the, the end of the empire Bryce made the comment um, that uh, let's see ah got it sorry alright the um, Bryce said Great Britain had refused in 1806 to recognize the dissolution of the empire. Now, that was important because the king of Great Britain was the elector of Hanover, one of the uh, 
College of Electors who elected the new emperor. And it may indeed be maintained that in point of law, the empire was never extinguished at all, but lived on as a sort of disembodied spirit. For it is clear that technically speaking, the abdication of a sovereign destroys only his own rights and does not dissolve the state over which he presides. Perhaps the elector of Saxony might legally, as imperial vicar during an interregnum, have summoned the electoral college to meet and choose the new emperor. Klaus Epstein, in the genesis of German conservatism, says something similar. He says, while there is no question that Francis was personally entitled to abdicate a crown he was no longer willing to wear, he certainly had no constitutional power to dissolve the fabric of imperial obligation per se. The empire, like all sovereign states, was intended to be perpetual, and the emperor had sworn to maintain it to the best of his ability. He broke his coronation oath when he declared it dissolved, and he failed to consult the Stende assembled at Regensburg about his highly irregular procedure. One can argue, therefore, that the imperial death warrant was technically ultra vires, and therefore null and void, and that the empire, quote-unquote, legally, continued to exist after 1806. Well, Father Aidan Nichols, OP, uh, made the... Um, made the comment uh, in Christendom Awake, quote, Catholicism as orthodoxy has historically regarded the monarchical institution in this light. Raised up by providence to safeguard the natural law in its transmission through history as that norm for human coexistence, which, founded as it is on the creator and renewed by him as the redeemer, cannot be made subject to the positive law or administrative fiat or the dictates of cultural fashion. Let us dare to exercise a Christian political imagination on an as yet unspecifiable future. The articulation of the foundational natural and Judeo-Christian norms of a really united Europe, for instance, would most appropriately be made by such a crown whose legal and customary relations with the national peoples would be modeled on the best aspects of historic practice in the Western Holy Roman Empire and the Byzantine Commonwealth, to use the term popularized by uh, uh, Professor Dmitry Obolensky. Well, uh, Soloviev made the comment, Vladimir Soloviev, that he uh, says, for lack of an imperial power, Genuinely Christian and Catholic, the Church has not succeeded in establishing social and political justice in Europe. The nations and states of modern times, freed since the Reformation from ecclesiastical surveillance, have attempted to improve upon the work of the Church. The results of the experiment are plain to see. The idea of Christendom as a real, though admittedly inadequate, unity embracing all the nations of Europe has vanished. The philosophy of the revolutionaries has made praiseworthy attempts to substitute for this, uh, for the unity, the unity of the human race, with what success is well known. A universal militarism transforming whole nations into hostile armies and itself inspired by a national hatred such as the Middle Ages never knew. A deep and irreconcilable social conflict. A class struggle which threatens to whelm everything in fire and blood and a continuous lessening of moral power in individuals, witnessed to by the constant increase in mental collapse, suicide, and crime. 
Such is the sum total of the progress which secularized Europe has made in the last three or four centuries. The two great historic uh, experiments, that of the Middle Ages and that of modern times, seem to demonstrate conclusively that neither the church, lacking the assistance of a secular power, which is distinct from but responsible to her, nor the secular state relying upon its own resources, can succeed in establishing Christian justice and peace on the earth. The close alliance and organic union of the two powers without confusion and without division is the indispensable condition of true social progress. It remains to inquire whether there is in the Christian world a power capable of taking up the work of Constantine and Charlemagne with better hope of success. Well, for him, that was the Tsar. He was writing in 1900, and he was hoping that the Tsar would be reconciled with Rome. It didn't happen. But I suspect that if we have world enough in time, something, the imperial idea will, will come back. Uh, who the emperor will be, I don't know. I mean, I would hope, of course, it would be a Habsburg, but I don't know. Um, but the idea of a Christian imperial power providing the missing half of church and state uh, and built upon enough subsidiarity to allow the kingdoms and so forth of Europe and elsewhere to subsist under it as part of it. That is an ideal to be hoped for, to be prayed for, and dare I say, even to be worked for. Hmm. Subsidiarity, I feel like, is a principle that would <sighs> require so much more grace to be executed nowadays, I feel like, because there there isn't a natural constraint no. as, as there was, you know, obviously in medieval times. You it's the the, the levers of power weren't there uh to centralize so easily, you know? It it may take our civilization collapsing. Yeah. Who do you feel you we've we've talked about this so many times, um but I don't believe I've ever asked you who has per perhaps the strongest claim to the title of emperor, Holy Roman Emperor. Oh, well, I would say either or both the Habsburgs and Romanovs. Not, uh... Bonaparte, uh, no. I, who's, I, I thought the Bourbon, um, the Duke d'Anjou? No, never, no? The king, king of France, but not emperor. Oh, interesting. Okay. Hmm. Mind you, under the sort of scheme I'd like to see, which is a united monarchical Europe, he'd be the king of France crowned at Ross. Interesting. Okay. Um... Mind you, also, I would have the Archduke Karl, uh, who crowned in Budapest and Prague, Milan, Aachen, Rome. I mean, I would like to see coronation fatigue become an illness uh, particular to the head of the House of Habsburg in every generation. Not another coronation, please. Yes, I'm sorry, Your Majesty. Another coronation. 
Hmm. That's that's interesting to think about that. The, the I'm just thinking of coronations in the, I'm just thinking of um sort of psychology with things nowadays because I know we tend to value things that are scarce. That's you know the, the way our mind works. And so, for example, because of that, one of the the hurdles I try to overcome is. Um, when it comes to the holy sacrifice of the mass, well, it's so accessible. You know, we go there and, and do that every week or maybe even every day. And the because it's so easily accessible, that almost that diminishes it psychologically. Did you COVID know, help with this? Uh, of course it. Of course it helped uh, uh, hugely. Of course, of course. Um, and as but especially with confession too. Um, Is that know, hard to get? It's impossible to get. Um, so so. Uh, but but do you see what I'm saying? I do, and it's something that has to be fought against. Of course, the other side is also true, and that is that the changes that daily communion, for example, will make in you, although they're imperceptible, they're real. And if you go to daily communion, and at some point you look back to where you were two and three and four and five years ago mentally, you'll see that it makes a difference. And also you'll see that you don't feel it usually so much receiving, but you feel when you feel it when you can't receive. It's interesting. I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of like that with the rosary right now in a sense where um, I feel like I say it poorly. I feel like I suck at it and that my mind is wandering too much and I don't say it devoutly and all these things. But that's okay because while on the surface it seems like an easy thing, in reality it's like the difference between like, you know, Little League and the Yankees, you know, you need to dedicate like your life to it. And there's this huge giant yeah. skill cap, if you will, it's uh, true. for it. So I guess perhaps it's the same thing with devoutly receiving communion. Um, perhaps you, there's a change there and you're perfecting um, your interior life, your prayer life, each a little bit each time you receive communion. Yeah, a so, bit more. Huh? Yeah, so that's interesting. Um, but I guess what I was trying to say to that though is the fact uh, there's actually something on our side is because coronations are so s incredibly scarce. Like this will be the first in, in you know my lifetime that that's at least something that's on our side. I guess you could say it's it's the second in my lifetime. Um, did did Elizabeth get crowned in your lifetime? Wait, hmm? who 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 was the first? Paul the sixth. Oh, that's right. Hmm. He had himself crowned with the ugliest tiara in the world, 
and he said, I'm making it ugly so that people will know what kind of a pope I'm going to be. No, he didn't say that. That's a weird story, if that were true. Okay. Uh, yeah, it would be. <laughs> I want, you know, I want to be honest with you all. You see how ugly this thing is? Well, that's because my pontificate's going to be really ugly. <laughs> all right. Uh, question, another question from Vande Radio, who says, please could you discuss the parallels between Roland and Boromir? Hmm. Interesting. Well, Roland, of course, was the nephew of Charlemagne, his favorite nephew. Um, he was very proud, very headstrong. Boromir, of course, was the fictional son of the fictional steward of Gondor. But what they had in common was a bit of foolhardiness. Uh, Roland would not call, would not blow his horn for help until it was too late. And of course, that Boromir blew the horn for help. Right. And no one came in his case. In Roland's case, Charlemagne and his men turned back over the mountain when they heard the, when they heard the horn blowing. Uh, but they were too late. Do you think there is a purposeful parallel there by Tolkien? Tolkien was extremely learned in medieval literature and in history. I mean, I've always felt that there was a parallel between the ride of the Rohirrim to Gondor and the ride of Jan Sobieski and the Poles and the winged hussars to Vienna. Uh, you know, you have motifs in Catholic history. And he drew on a lot of these. Um, prior to becoming king of Gondor, uh, Aragorn is very much like Bonnie Prince Charlie, you know, living rude in the heather and all this sort of thing. But then when he wins, he becomes like Charlemagne, the restorer of everything. Mm. So, uh, and again, it's, it's also the, the, um, what's his name? The, uh, the head of the Tooks, the, um, not the Master of Buckland. That was the Brandy Bucks. The Thane. The Thane, the Thane. yes. <laughs> it was the Thane. Oh, man. It was the Thane. And there was a uh, great... Uh, the Bull Roarer? What's that? Is that the Bull Roarer? Well, no. He was one of them. <laughs> I love that was, name. Yeah, Bandivers Took. But uh, the Took family were the hereditary Thanes. Um. <laughs> and they were the um they were the the Tooks were the um the Tooks were the nominal heads of the Shire. Pause for channel identification. Uh, off the menu is now being broadcast and podcast on the Crusade channel. Talk radio the way it should be at crusadechannel.com. Uh, but the uh, the um, the Tooks refused to have anything to do with the uh, with the new rulership of the Shire by uh, Frodo Sackville Baggins. Uh, 
uh, we just wouldn't wouldn't take it. And let me see if I can find what I am looking for. There was a great quote about. Um, it was a tremendous quote from. Um, There's a great quote from uh, in Tolkien, um, which I probably can't come up with much as I would like to. Uh, but the the uh, the Tooks refused to uh, bow down to Sharky, Saruman. Right. And there's uh, there, there's some. I, I can't get the actual quote, uh, but there's a wonderful line where um, where he, he says um, they say that uh, the 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 Thane said that he was the Thane, and if anyone was going to run the Shire, it was he. And um, as it says, they they don't dare they being Sharky's men don't dare go into the Tookland because the Tooks hunt them. Mm. And as a result, when the uh, when uh, Mary, Pippin, Sam, and Frodo come back to the Shire, they send a messenger off. Once they've taken over the the uh, little barracks that they take over, they send a messenger quick to raise the Tooks to send hobbits to uh, to Bywater. Well, here here is the quote I wanted. Hi. All right, so uh, it's described. Um, they they see Farmer Cotton, who describes what's been going on and about the fighting and how they've shot one or two of the hobbits, the the men that Sharky has. And then uh, there you are, Frodo said. Said Mary, I knew we would have to fight. Well, they started the killing. Not exactly, said Cotton. This way is not the shooting. Took started that. You see, your dad, Mr. Peregrine, he's never had no truck with this Lotho, not from the beginning, said that if anyone was going to play the chief at this time of day, it would be the right thing of the Shire and no upstart. And when Lotho sent his men, they got no, charge, no change out of him. Tooks are lucky. They've got those deep holes in the green hills, the great smiles and all, and the ruffians can't come at them, and they won't let the ruffians come on their land. If they do, Tooks hunt them. Took shot three for prowling and robbing. After that, the ruffians turn nastier, and they keep a pretty close watch on Tookland. No one gets in or out of it now. Good for the Tooks, cried Pippin. But someone is going to get it get in again now. I'm off to the smiles. Anyone coming with me to Tuckborough? Pippin rode off with half a dozen lads on ponies. See you soon, he cried. It's only fourteen miles or so over the fields. I'll bring you back an army of Tooks in the morning. Mary blew a horn call after them as they rode off into the gathering night. The people cheered. Mm. I've always, I've always loved that, and uh, and uh, the uh, the th the uh, head of the Tooks saying, uh, if anyone was going to play the chief at this time of day, it would be the right thing of the Shire and no upstart. <laughs> the uh, that's uh, on a par 
with, um, you know, the other great official there was the master of Buckland, who was uh, Mary Brandybuck's uh, fellow, his, his uncle or grandfather, whatever it was. And the, um, the, uh, the flight to the Ford, uh, the, the, uh, where they're, they're, being pursued by the, uh, they're being pursued by the, uh, what should we call it, by the, uh, the Black Rider. He, um, he chases them all the way to Buckland. Ah, you know, I I, um, I don't remember where it is, but basically when Buckland gets roused against the Black Rider, they talk about the great horn of Buckland that had not, had not sounded in a hundred years since the great winter when the white wolves crossed the Brandywine. What is... What is Tolkien drawing from with the horns, the horn of Buckland, um, the horn of Gondor, and most uh, most notably, most notably, the horn of Helm Hammerhand? Well, because horns were a big deal in medieval Europe. Remember, they didn't have phones, they didn't have telegrams, they didn't have any of our modern communications. So musical instruments and horns in particular um were one of the major means of communication uh to this day for instance uh in europe when they hunt deer or fox to hound there are different bugle calls that mean different things the the quarry is in sight we're gaining on him we caught him that kind of thing hmm. okay. it was a major means of communication but I mean, it seems like there's a tradition, you know, like there's a, yeah. almost an awe and reverence for the horn and like the meaning, uh, like what it means to blow the horn and stuff. Like oh, that. yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, like in the case of Roland, about whom we were asked earlier, uh, Roland's horn was only to be blown if he really needed help. And he did not want to did not want to do it. Now, the horn in question uh, was called an oliphant. Like that. Ivory hunter, not, like, not, not exactly like the rhyme, but uh, elephant, horns made from elephant tusks, ivory hunting horns, were quite famous. And um, in the Song of Roland, Roland carries his oliphant while serving on the rear guard of Charlemagne's army. When they are attacked at the Battle of Roncevaux, Oliver tells Roland to use the call for aid, but he refuses. Um, uh, Roland finally relents, but the battle is already lost. He tries to destroy the elephant along with his sword, Durandal, lest they fall into enemy hands. In the end, Roland blows the horn, but the force required bursts his temple, resulting in death. Hmm. That's pretty rough, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, 
Olivier de Vienne, he dies with Roland at the Battle of Ronsor. Hmm. Uh, that's, yeah, the 12 peers of Charlemagne. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode. Um, well, we can't we can't without uh, mentioning a couple of things. Okay. One is the Easter egg roll is being prepared by the uh, ladies of the typing pool. The gardeners are getting ready. The uh, Tyrone has invited both of his nephews over for the Easter egg roll. Are you gonna Are you gonna officiate this year? No, I'm not really. I, I'm not a good egg roll judge. What? They're not egg rolls. They're going to roll eggs. Really? I think, I think you could probably enjoy egg rolls very I, much. I don't go down to see the, you know, the peasant folk. I don't hang out and, you know, I don't dance around the maypole. You know what I mean? Your brother used to. <laughs> Your brother, when they would put up the maypole in the middle of the, the quad there, uh, he would dance around it with the best of them. He had the common touch, your brother. He never, he, you never got the feeling he was too big for his britches. You know, he 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 didn't mind socializing, drinking the rotgut liquors that they would drink. He, you know, he could be down. He could go down to the mail room and stamp a few envelopes now and then. Well, you know, he'd go out with Tyrone's father onto the uh, out of the shooting range. That was Even a long. That, that was a long time ago, Charles. That was a long time ago. As as you know, I mean, obviously his situation has changed. He's holed up uh, in Howard Hughes fashion. Um, yeah, I know, I know. But I I remember when uh, he used to uh, he used to tease then middle aged Rose as opposed to old Rose as she is now. And I remember how he used to tease her about being his one true love. And she would laugh at him and say, oh, you're so silly, Mr. Frankini. But she would she'd have a nice smile the rest of the day when he would say that. See, he had the common touch. Well, I'm sorry I don't possess some of these qualities. I guess I'm just Faramir or something like that, huh? <laughs> oh, and, oh, and what? I'm your great uncle Stuart? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, man. I, I, I like that. <laughs> I, I, I like that a lot. <laughs> Perhaps in another family, we it could be done, but this this family is ancient. And this this Frankini you bring me from the north of Italy, never will I recognize him. <laughs> oh man! All well, right. No, uh, have a good time, ladies and gentlemen. We'll be here next week. Um, we got Lent coming up, a lot more Lent, lots more Lent, and, oh, wait a minute, you know what I completely did, almost forgot to mention? What? Friday. Friday is, I, what, what day is Friday? So Friday is the 17th, March 17th, okay. Oh come! What is it? Flag day? Is it Law Day? What? What? What is it? Log Day. I like that. Are you really telling me you don't remember? March seventeenth? Are you kidding me? What? What is it? 
Oh, uh, St. Patrick's Day. Okay, you're right. Because actually, I have planned. I actually bought a special vest uh, for it, actually. Um, a special green vest. Yeah, St. Patrick's Day. Okay, calm down. Calm down, Charles. Okay, all the Irish, calm down. Okay? I don't... Um, I, I'm embarrassed. So... So what's the ruling? So I mean, it's a Friday of Lent. Are are, are people really going to break? Like an, if, your, if your bishop has given you, and let's we, we talked about this last week. Let's see if the Archbishop of L.A. has given a St. Patrick's Day dispensation. A lot of American bishops have. Let's hmm. See, let's see. Twenty twenty-three. How is it possible to be that Cardinal Dolan lifts no mean for say Patrick's Day, but that's New York. Well also it's okay. Yeah, it's Cardinal Dolan. Yeah. Uh let's see, the Archdiocese of LA about the death of Bishop O'Connell. I think O'Connell would want it lifted. Um, no, I don't see any. Um, that's interesting. Well, let's go to Archdiocese of Los Angeles and see if it's in the news section. But check your, ladies and gentlemen, check your diocesan websites. Okay, that's interesting because there's a lot of money on the line in a sense. I mean, in actually, there's not as much money on the line as there should be. If you know what I'm saying, like if people were more devout, there would be a lot of money on the line. But obviously, um, you know. Yeah, it's well, I am afraid I don't see nothing. Okay, I see COVID-19 updates, so that might be fun. Well, I'm probably not going to. Step out, celebrate St. Patrick's Day. Maybe St. Joseph's, you know? Maybe St. Joseph's. Next, so that's that's Sunday. Oh, is it Sunday already? Wow. Okay. Thank you for t- – that's a big deal, actually, So because we actually obviously religiously go to St. Joseph's table. Okay, so that's good. Well, now you've got to think. Uh, are you going to go down to St. Peter's Italian for St. Joseph's uh, table? Or are you going to see if the ICF will do something at Holy Angels? We did Holy Angels last year, and they did have a nice St. Joseph's table, in my opinion. Um, and it was pretty cool. You know, the priest, Father Kevin, came down and, and blessed it all. Uh, Father Kevin? Father Kevin, yeah. He's Irish. Kevin? Yeah, I know. But he... So I you but got it, a mix blessing. Oh, that's great. <laughs> that's great. That's just great. Uh, so you've got a mix blessing at St. Joseph's table. Great. That's that's just perfect. You need a WAP. You need a Dago to do a St. Joseph's Table blessing properly. You know, we actually don't have a lot of Italian priests in the San Gabriel Valley. There's a no. lot of Irish priests. There's not a lot of Italian priests, now that I think that's, of it. That's why you've got to go to St. Peter's Italian. Okay. Now, I'm going to help you out hey, here. I, I am not, you know... <laughs> yeah, well, your great uncle was. Uh, Let me tell you, 
All right. No, not Syracuse. Los Angeles. Syracuse comes up. Why is it always upstate? All right. St. Peter's Italian Church, Los Angeles. All right. About us. The Scalabrini Fathers, see? Okay. No. Ah, no, that's Lent. I don't want Lent. The Madonna di Constantinopoli. St. Joseph's Table Feast. Okay, here you go. Friday, March 17th, 2023. So they're muscling in on the Mick action. Saturday, March 18th, 2023. Sunday, March 19th, 2023. St. Peter's Italian Church, Mass in English and Italian, each day at 11 a.m. Come and enjoy the table full of homemade cookies like Grandma used to make, along with the pizza, cannoli, spumoni ice cream, sausage and meatball sandwiches, and much more. Free spaghetti dinner. All, All right. are welcome to join us from 12 to 8 p.m. Beautiful. So you can go down to St. Joseph's Table. Okay, I'll I'll try to do that, Charles. I'll keep you posted. Um, I, I think I think you should tell Gina, you should say, honey, we got to be with our own. Let's go down to St. Joseph's Table. All right. Very At St. Peter's Italian Church. You're going to love it. It's a wonderful place. When I was living in L.A., I always went down to St. Joseph's Table at St. Peter's Italian. Always. And I always went to the Italian Mass before, and it was wonderful. It was just like the old country. And now that I find out I've got Italian blood, you know what? It's It makes sense. <laughs> but see, you know, I'll tell you something. I was once accused. They said to me, you know, when you do Irish, you're like a stage Irishman. When you do French Canadian, you're like a stage French Canadian. Okay, fine. So why can't I be a stage Italian too? Now that I know I'm part Italian. Well, apparently you can be. I mean, yeah, you're. Is there anything wrong with this? Nothing is wrong with this, Charles. Absolutely nothing in the world. All right, we have to go. We're out of time. We're out of time, but I got one more question for you. What is that? Rigat Rigatoni or farfalle? So farfalle is actually those are the bow ties, aren't they? That's the American. That's right. Yeah. So you got it. <laughs> What's uh, it gonna be? When I have farfalle, it's it's usually buttered. Rigatoni is usually a bigger, a bigger. Like proper meal, I so I, I'm gonna go with rigatoni on that one. Okay, uh, meat sauce or marinara? Meat sauce, big time. Okay, meat sauce. You're gonna have sausage. You're gonna have meatballs, or both, or neither. Uh, both. What 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 do you like more, Genovese or Bolognese sauce? Bolognese. <laughs> okay. But there you know, go. I got a I got a question for you, boss. Yeah. Now the okay, so you know what you're gonna do Sunday. It's St. Joseph's Day. Yeah. But what about when it's Monday? When it's Monday, it's off the menu. I see. Well, let me ask you another question, huh? Yeah. What about this? What about the so you save? It may be your own. Just so, ladies and gentlemen, we shall see you. It's not how much you know, it's how much dough. Ask any German bishop. Yeah. All right, see you next time, everyone. Take care. Ciao, ciao.